begin with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, our great sovereign God, we thank you that you have providentially protected your church from false teaching. You've actually used heresies to, that have come against your church to, to strengthen your church and help your people think more clearly about your precious truths and to proclaim them more boldly and more accurately. So we ask that you would be with us this evening, help us to see the, the vast contrast between your truth and the many false teachings that have come along. We ask that you would be with us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So tonight we're going to take a look at heresies of the early church. In the early church, we're talking first century, second century, early third century. Some of the early heresies that have come against the early church. And some of this will be reviewed for you because I've talked about some of these heresies in conjunction with, with uh, the church fathers, uh, the various heresies that they had to contend with. But I think it's good to, to be familiar with these heresies because many times the heresies that come against the church in our day are just simply repackaged and recycled heresies of the early church. Sometimes they're presented as, as new ideas, new thinking, new understandings, but oftentimes we find that they're just old delusions. Now, this first heresy that I'm going to discuss is one that you may not be familiar with. These are the Ebionites. This is a, a heresy that rose early in the church, early in church history. The term Ebionite is generally viewed not as based on the name of its founder, but rather on the Aramaic word for the poor. It is a title they may have applied to themselves. Since all we have are later writings rejecting and refuting their views, it is difficult to know exactly who the Ebionites were, how they originated or what they taught. People criticizing others often draw caricatures of their enemies, and this may have happened with the Ebionites. And that's one thing that I would say when, when dealing with, with heresies of our day. We don't have to make things up about them. You know, all we, all we need to do is to tell what they actually really do believe and show that that's not scriptural. You don't have to, to make them look worse than they really are. And there is, a, there is a tendency to do that. There is no doubt, however, that the Ebionites developed out of Jewish Christianity perhaps as an offshoot of the Jerusalem church after it moved out of Jerusalem shortly before the destruction of the city by the Romans in AD 70. After leaving Jerusalem, several groups of Jewish Christians appeared to have developed in relatively independent ways. The major group continued its connection to the larger church that was becoming increasingly Gentile. And so it's not our concern here. They simply became part of the larger Orthodox Christian community. But other groups also developed with various degrees of connection to Judaism. It was not only the Christians who were scattered with the destruction of Jerusalem. Remnants of the Essene community who were also scattered may well have joined some branch of the Jewish Christians who had fled the Romans. The Essene community near the Dead Sea, which was, which was responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, was destroyed by the Romans in the same campaign that ended in the destruction of Jerusalem. But that Essene community down at the Dead Sea was not the only Essene community. There were Essenes throughout Israel. And some of them, when they were scattered, when they were driven out of Jerusalem, they, they may have joined up 
for some offshoots uh, of the church. We know that the Essenes referred to themselves as the poor or meek who would inherit the land, a promise made in Psalm 37:11. That may be the source for one of the Beatitudes. If it is true that the Ebionites included among their ranks some former Essene, it is possible that the influence of the latter may be seen in the very name of the group. So these Jewish Christians may have been influenced by those who joined their congregations from the Essenes rather than from Orthodox Judaism. What we do know is that the Ebionites were followers of the law, whose ceremonial injunctions they strictly adhered. And they saw Jesus as a new teacher who upheld the law of Moses rather than ending its ceremonial features. The Ebionites kept the Jewish Sabbath as well as the, as well as the Christian Lord did. And they held to circumcision, though it is not clear if they demanded this of Gentile converts to Christianity. They turned to place Jerusalem when they prayed. Evidently, they had daily ritual baths as well as the Christian baptism of initiation into the community. However, while the Ebionites stressed the ceremonial law, they believed, and this is where they differ from, from mainstream Orthodox Judaism, they believed that the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, had been radically misinterpreted by traditional Judaism. One such error was in taking the commandments regarding sacrifices as God's final purpose. The Ebionites believed that when the Israelites made and worshiped the golden calf in the desert, God told Moses that Moses that they were not ready for true spiritual worship and gave him the law of sacrifices as a lesser and temporary evil. Jesus came to correct that and institute the true worship of God, according to the Ebionite teaching. In this disapproval uh, of temple worship and sacrifices, as well as the frequent ritual baths, there are overtones of Essene beliefs. So that is something that they did have in common with the Essenes. They rejected the, the sacrifices of temple worship. The Ebionites used some form of the Gospel of Matthew, although they omitted some sections of it, particularly the account of the virgin birth. They also held that Jesus did not eat a sacrificed lamb at the Passover meal, which would have seen the continuation of the law of sacrifices they rejected. In fact, their opposition may have been not only to animal sacrifices, but also to the eating of meat. The Ebionites began very early, at a time when there was no official New Testament. Most of the writings that eventually were collected as the New Testament were already circulating among the churches, but they had not been joined into a single collection. Most churches had some, but not all the books that eventually were considered canonical. Among the Christian writings that were then circulating, the Ebionites did not like Paul at all. In fact, they viewed him as an enemy of true Christianity because he not only taught that the ceremonial law of Israel no longer needed to be kept, but also stressed that Jesus was the true incarnation of God and not simply a prophet in the line of Moses. Paul saw the death of Jesus as the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. His death was the ultimate Passover, freeing his followers from sin and death, just as the original Passover had freed the Israelites from bondage to Egypt and from the death of the first one. Paul wrote, for our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival. The Ebionites would have found this totally unacceptable. They would readily agree that Jesus had ended all sacrifices. They would agree with that. 
but they could not accept the notion that Jesus himself was the sacrifice. They also rejected such views because they made Christ something more than a teacher of the law. However, others from the Jerusalem church and most Christians elsewhere would have agreed with Paul on these issues and found the Ebionite view unacceptable. We know that some forms of Jewish Christianity, that is congregations made up of Jewish Christians who still kept much of the ceremonial law, including circumcision, continued for several centuries, but only at the edges of the Roman Empire. The rapid growth of Gentile Christianity lessened any impact they might otherwise have had. They seemed to survive by their remoteness and whatever little increase there was in their numbers was mainly through their own birth rate. Many in the greater church found the Ebionites continued use of Jewish ceremonial law unacceptable, and the Ebionites could be among those groups Paul and others referred to as Judaizers. However, we do not know whether they were interested in Gentile converts as the Judaizers in Paul's epistles were, even if such converts were willing to keep the law. Perhaps they were agreeable to Gentile congregations not keeping the ceremonial law, but felt that Jewish congregations should. This would mean that Jewish and Gentile Christians could not share the same table, an issue that would contradict Paul's statement that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There were other elements in Ebionism that were unacceptable to Orthodox Judaism as well as to Orthodox Christianity. Though they believed that God was the only creator and had indeed created this world, the Ebionites included in that creation an evil feminine force along with the good masculine power. The kingdom of this world is given over to evil by God, whereas the world to come is in the hands of good. Jesus is the ruler of the future world and those who follow him now will be with him in the final kingdom. Both good and evil have had numerous manifestations, according to Ebionites, beginning with Cain and Abel. The law of Israel was from Moses, who was good, but was corrupted by the evil principle to include animal sacrifices. I mean, they, didn't, they didn't go along with animal sacrifices. They didn't like that. John the Baptist, according to their teaching, was the evil principle, and Jesus the good. All of these may seem strange ideas, but they were part of Ebionism. Yet when the church at large dealt with Ebionism, the central issue was none of these strange doctrines. What the church rejected was Ebionite Christology. For the Ebionites, Jesus was the most recent and even the most powerful of the long line of instruments for the good. He stood in the line of Abel, Moses, the prophets and others, but he was a human being was being used by the force of good. He was born as are others with no virgin birth and he is no true incarnation of God in our midst. He was not God, but rather a vehicle used by God. So from the second century on, when some were accused of being Ebionite, what this meant was that they believed Jesus to be fully human, even endowed with divine power, but not God. Many of these people, dubbed Ebionites, believed that at the baptism of Jesus, an archangel in the form of a dove entered him and gave him this divine power. The words, this is my beloved son, indicated that he was now empowered by God, but still only a human being. 
In this sense, Ebenite Christology is the opposite of Docetism. So Docetism or, or uh, uh, Gnosticism, Docetism is a, is a branch of, of Gnosticism. So Gnosticism taught that Christ was not material, he was not physical, he was only spiritual. So they denied the, the humanity of Jesus. The Edenites did just the opposite. They said that Jesus was just a man and they denied the spiritual element of Jesus. So that is why it is so important that true Christians understand and emphasize that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. To deny either his deity or his humanity is heresy. This view also implies that Jesus was mainly a teacher and not a redeemer. For the Edenites, his teaching was a restoration of the Mosaic law that had been corrupted, corrupted by the addition of these animal sacrifices. Within many of the major cities of the Roman Empire, many Gentiles held the Jewish community in high regard. Jewish monotheism and moral laws were viewed by many non-Jews as admirable. Even in the New Testament, we hear of God-givers, such as Cornelius in Acts 10. That is, Gentiles who attended synagogue meetings and agreed with the moral law and monotheism of Judaism, but who did not follow the laws on the Sabbath, food, or circumcision, and therefore did not become Jews. Jews were viewed more as philosophers, those offering the way to the good life, than as an alternative to the various religious cults. These cults were ways to appease the different gods. Though early Christians did not participate in these religious ceremonies, and that would be considered idolatry, they too were viewed as alternative philosophers. And by the second century, there were debates among Greek philosophers, Jews, and Christians, each opposing a different understanding of what the good life is and how to live it. So even back then in the second century, people were looking for their best life now, I guess. In these debates, the frequent charge of Jews against Christians was that they were not monotheists, but believed in two gods, the God of Israel, whom they accepted because they used the Hebrew scriptures, and Jesus. So Jews frequently uh, accused Christians of worshiping two gods rather than, than in monotheism. We have an account of, or notes for, one such debate between the famous Christian apologist, Justin Martyr and Trypho, a Jew, mentioned this earlier in, the, in this series, from the middle of the second century. In that writing, Justin acknowledges that there are those who call themselves Christians yet believe that Jesus was only a human being, endowed with special powers by God. He would be in the Ebionites. So Justin did acknowledge that those, that those people existed. What is interesting is that regardless of all the other characteristics of their teaching, by Justin's time, the critical issue of Nebionite teaching, that which the rest of the church found unacceptable, is that Jesus was not viewed as God. Justin, Justin himself holds to monotheism and explains that, is the, that it is the wisdom, the logos, the Sophia of God that became truly incarnate in Jesus. This is similar to what we find in the prologue to the Gospel of John. Justin made a sharp distinction between God the Father and God's logos or 
or Sophia, whom he unfortunately refers to as a second god. This would prove not to be satisfactory and it set the stage for later debates and controversy. It, it took a while into the fourth century for, for the church to fully grasp this idea of one God in three persons and to learn how to articulate and explain this concept clearly and accurately. Now we turn from Ebionite, the Ebionite heresy to a, a related heresy called adoptionism. In the third century, a Christology appeared that had overtones of Ebionism, although its origins were different. This movement is often called adoptionism. The Ebionites could be called adoptionists since their view, in their view, the power of God had in a sense adopted Jesus. These later adoptionists, however, were not Jewish Christians. They often lived in areas where traditional Jews were a significant intellectual influence, and these Jews were accusing Christians of having more than one God, the God of Israel and Jesus. In a way, this was a continuation of the debates Justin had faced a century earlier. This posed a serious problem, since for many Greeks, it was the monotheism of Christianity that was its main attraction. The most significant proponent of an adoptionist Christology in the third century was Paul of Samosata. Paul of Samosata. Paul was a civil official who became Bishop of Antioch in the year 260. At that point, Antioch was subject to Palmyra, whose queen Zenobia supported Paul. This is perhaps the earliest example of state power intervening in church politics. So this is uh, this is in Samosata, which is near Palmyra, which is in uh, what is today Syria. It occurred in a period of relative peace for the church between the time of persecution in the middle of the third century and the outbreak of even greater persecution at the beginning of the fourth century. During this time, some politically well-connected people had been joining the church. Some members of Paul's church were concerned with some of his actions as well as his theology. He did not believe that hymns should be sung to Christ as though he were God. So if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you don't believe that the church should sing hymns to him. He did believe in the virgin birth, unlike the Ebionites. He did believe in the virgin birth, but he held that the power of God joined the infant Jesus at inception. This power was not God, but rather the same power that inspired the ancient prophets. It could be a higher degree of such power, but nonetheless, Jesus was not God, but a man empowered by God. The technical term the church has used for this view is dynamic monarchianism. The word dynamic comes from the Greek word meaning power and we use it in words such as dynamo or dynamite. The word monarchianism means only one ruler, as in monarchy. In this case, meaning that there is only one God ruling the universe and that, that God has given power to Jesus. This preserves monotheism, but at the cost of denying the deity of Christ. Another form of monarchianism called modalistic monarchianism, I mentioned this last time in conjunction with uh, 
with origin, this was something that origin part against modalistic monarchianism, sometimes called modalism or Sibelianism. It preserved monotheism by holding that God had three different modes, the Father, who became the Son, who became the Holy Spirit. That did not deny the deity of Christ, but it presented other problems as we shall see. Although Paul of Samosata's political connections had kept him in power for a while, various local church synods condemned him, and he was finally deposed when Palmyra became part of the Roman Empire after Emperor Aurelius defeated Zenobia, Queen Zenobia. Ebionism is the beginning of a sporadic history of attempts to understand Jesus as only a human being, but one who was chosen by God and given power by God. There are great varieties of this idea, as you can imagine, and all can be viewed as forms of adoptionism. Some place the adoption of Jesus by God. So, so there are various forms of adoptionism, and they they differ by when they when they consider Jesus to have been adopted by God. So some place the adoption of Jesus by God at his conception, as did Paul of Samosata, and accept the virgin birth. Others place his adoption at Jesus' baptism, using the words from heaven as their support. In that case, it was his moral and faithful life up to that point that made God choose Jesus as his adopted son. In all these cases, the function of the special power given to Jesus was to sweep God's work thus placing him in the line of Moses and the prophets. He was basically a teacher, but a teacher with a divine word. This opinion enjoyed renewed favor in the Renaissance period with a form of Unitarianism that began in Italy in the 16th century. It was known as Socinianism, named after its founders, the uncle and nephew, Valius and Faustus Socinus. Because any public statement opposed to the Trinitarian theology adopted at the Council of Nicaea, which I will discuss later, was illegal, the Socinians were forced to move outside of the Holy Roman Empire. They settled in the city of Rakow, Poland, and there wrote a catechism. That's how we know about them. This writing was directly related to the development of the English Unitarians Unitarians in the next century. So Sinian and various other Unitarian views were opposed by both the Roman Catholics and the newly created Protestant churches. Wherever rationalism is a strong influence in theology, Ebionite or adoptionist views are likely to appear. This was true with the Socinians, but it was also true in some of the liberal theology that emerged in the 19th century. Jesus becomes a teacher of the moral law, but in no sense a redeemer. His death shows the depths of his belief and is, a, is an example for us, but is not an atoning action, according to the adoptionist view. For the early church, it was clear that Jesus was somehow God. It took a, a while to work out all of that as, as far as the, the nature of the son, the nature of the relationship between the father and the son. 
But to deny this was a denial of the means of redemption that the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection implied. Yet the affirmation of monotheism is as essential to Christianity as it had been to Judaism. How could both of these statements be affirmed? How could Jesus be divine and there still be only one God? It would not be until the fourth century that these questions would be faced directly. Over three centuries before Christ, now we're, now we're turning to Gnosticism. I've, I've talked quite a bit about Gnosticism before, but it's really essential to understand Gnosticism because it keeps coming up, keeps coming different variations of the Gnostic view, keep coming up and down in our day. Over three centuries before Christ, Greek philosophers, most notably Plato, had spoken of the existence of two worlds. One is the, there's this physical world we see in which we live with all its pain, perplexity, and imperfection. The other is a purely spiritual realm of ideas, which are much more real than their representations here on earth that we take for reality. This is describing the Platonic view. Humans are in fact spiritual beings. Our souls belong to that higher realm. We must not allow our bodies and other physical realities to hide this fact from us or to make us forget it. At the time of the, of the advent of Christianity, such ideas were fairly popular in the Mediterranean basin. Such notions became quite common in the Hellenistic tradition and were succinctly expressed in the Greek pun, pun Soma Sema, the body is a sepulcher. From their perspective, the body rather than being good is an impediment standing in the way to fullness of life. It was not only the Greeks and their intellectual descendants who held such views on the nature and value of the physical world and of the body in Medicare. From the East, Persia and Mesopotamia came even more radically dualistic notions, claiming that there are two eternal principles, good and evil, or light and darkness. And that the problem with this world and this life is that these two principles have mingled so that there are sparks of goodness and light in this evil and dark world. Such sparks are primarily the human soul, elements of light trapped in the darkness of the body awaiting the day when the barrier between light and darkness will be restored and all souls will live in light. In movements emanating from those Persian traditions, one of the ways to free the soul from the body was to starve the latter. In one particular system, the perfect would eventually starve themselves to death, while the hearers were allowed to eat only a limited range of foods, one of them being beans, apparently because it was believed that there was a spark of spirit, pneuma, which means both spirit and wind, in beans, and that by eating them, one contributed to the liberation of that spiritual reality. Many other religions and philosophical schools held similar views. Incidentally, this reminds me of the scripture um, in Colossians, uh, Colossians 2.21. Paul is describing the false teachers and their, and their teachings. And he, he mentions that some of the false teachings are touch not, taste not, handle not. And so we can see in that the, the echoes of Gnosticism, the idea that 
that matter is evil, that you need to stay away from food as much as possible. Even though some Jews did embrace this absolutely negative valuation of the world, this was not and had never been the typical Hebrew stance. On the contrary, the Hebrew scriptures begin with a story about God making the world and seeing that it was good. The religion of Israel celebrated God's power over seas and mountains, over rivers and fields, and even over human history, because the God of Israel, the Almighty, was the creator and sustainer of all things. Then Christianity came into the scene. It soon gained large numbers of Gentile converts. It probably also attracted some elements within Judaism that were not satisfied with the traditional religion of Israel, and that saw in Christianity an alternative to that religion. Many of these people shared the common notion that the world and its matter are evil, and believed this, that this view was perfectly compatible with the Christian message. Of course, it's not, but they thought it was. For most among those who held such views were the Gnostics. During the early century of the Christian era, there really was no such thing as an organized or coherent Gnostic religion. There were many Gnostic schools, each borrowing and reshaping ideas from the other, and often in fiercer competition among themselves than what came to be known as Orthodox Christianity. Today, we refer to them as Gnostics because that was the name given, the name some of them took, as well as the name given to them by Orthodox Christians who sought to refute and ridicule them. But there were many differences among them, among the Gnostics. And therefore, we also refer to them by the names of their founders. The Valentinians, I've talked about them before, the Basilidians, etc., or by the particular doctrines distinguishing them, the Ophidians, the Canaanites, etc. Like the ancient Sophists, many Gnostic teachers were grandiloquent, in other words, impressing people and trying to outdo each other with their high sounding language and mysterious words. Toward the end of the second century, in what appears to be a fair description of their vain eloquence, Clement of Alexandria ridiculed them, saying that they were like old shoes, full of holes, but with tongues like new. In spite of their many disagreements, these various groups had a number of elements in common. First of all, they explained the existence of the world not as a result of the will of a good God, as in Judaism and Orthodox Christianity, but as the result of an error or of malice on the part of some celestial being. The result was a dualistic understanding of reality in which there are things, usually all material reality, that are evil, and other things, usually spiritual reality, including human souls, that are good. Poking fun at such teachings, North African theologian Tertullian, writing some 20 years after Clement of Alexandria, comments, my God made heaven and earth, and you cannot point to a measly vegetable yours has produced over all these centuries. So Christians and Jews as well consider God the creator. But in the Gnostic view, God is not the creator because matter is evil. 
and God wouldn't have printed that. In this regard, most of these groups, like Jews and Christians, held that there is only one principle or beginning of all things. In Gnosticism, this purely spiritual principle was often called the pleroma or fullness. Within it, there are a series of distinct means called aeons. We talked about them before. In each Gnostic system, there were different numbers of aeons. So the, the form of Gnosticism that I talked about before, there are 30 aeons, but they're often tied to astronomical observations. For instance, in the system of Basilides, there were 365 aeons, each corresponding to a different day of the year. In other systems, some aeons were given names that in Greek were masculine, word, abyss, etc. And others were given feminine names, truth, wisdom, etc. It was then claimed that pairs of these aeons begat lesser aeons until at the end of this process, one of these aeons, far removed from the origin by this process of generations, begat the word mostly as a mistake, or as some would say, as an abortion. It is against such teaching that 1 Timothy 1 4 warns its readers not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations. It could well be that Paul was referring to this Gnostic teaching. As we today read the apparently endless list of aeons and their generations, we find it difficult to understand how such views could have been as attractive as they were for people in the first century. This is partly because, after all, most of what we know of early Gnostic teachings has come to us in the works of ancient Christian writers whose purpose was to refute them and who therefore presented the various Gnostic schools and Gnosticism as a whole in the most ridiculous light possible. Gnostics certainly explained the origin of the world by means of such generations of aeons. But even though their opponents made much of such endless generations, this was not the reason for their attraction. The main reason for the attraction of Gnosticism was not that it offered an explanation for the origin of this apparently evil material world. Its main attraction was that it promised a means to escape from the world. What Gnosticism promised was nothing less than salvation. Salvation as an escape from the soul from the material world. This salvation was the second point that various Gnostic teachers held in common. Salvation was usually attained by a secret knowledge. In Greek, gnosis, that's the name of the entire movement. In many systems, this knowledge provided the secret key to ascend through the spheres. This was based on the astronomical views of the time, which saw the earth at the center of the universe surrounded by a series of spheres, usually seven, corresponding to the sun, the moon, and the five most visible planets. That would be Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Those are the, the planets that are visible to the naked eye. The planets that are further out, like Uranus and Neptune and Pluto, you need a, you need a telescope to see them. So they, they only knew of, of the five planets 
Gnostics held that the pleroma lay beyond these spheres, which acted as layers of imprisonment for the soul, precluding its ascent to the pleroma. But if upon arriving at each of these spheres, the soul knew the secret to pass through it, usually a secret password, it could continue in its ascent, eventually reaching the joy of the pleroma. So you needed secret knowledge, secret understanding to, to get through these very spheres to reach the pleroma. Third, and perhaps most importantly, Gnostics generally uh, proved quite willing to pick up bits of wisdom from a variety of sources and then to piece them together into their own system. It was this that gave rise to Christian Gnosticism. So Christian Gnosticism wasn't necessarily a Christian movement to begin with. I mean, there was pagan Gnosticism, there was Jewish Gnosticism, and then finally there was Christian Gnosticism. So these Gnostic teachers were, were very adept at uh, finding bits of pieces of, of other religions to adopt into their system. There were Gnostic systems quite apart from Christianity, or only partially influenced by it. But as Christianity began its preaching and gaining converts, many Gnostics began incorporating Christian ideas and names into their system. And that seems like to me the way it always works, that False teachers uh, realize that, that Christianity is gaining, gaining converts, is growing, so they try to piggyback onto that by claiming that they are the true Christians. Thus, very early in the second century, Christian Gnosticism arose. Many in the early church saw this as a greater danger than unadulterated Gnosticism. So, if it was just plain Gnosticism, you can recognize it as a false teaching, but when it began to incorporate some elements of Christianity, including elements of Christianity, this sort of Gnosticism became more attractive to Christians. It therefore threatened to obscure the uniqueness of the Christian message, as well as a number of biblical principles. The first and most important point at which several Gnostic teachers appropriated Christian elements, and certainly the most dangerous from the point of view of Orthodox Christians, was the very name and person of Christ. Christians proclaimed that God had been manifested in Jesus of Nazareth. Many Gnostics claimed the same thing, but gave it a different twist. For them, Jesus was a messenger from above, or from the Pleroma, who brought to earth the message of salvation, to remind souls of their divine nature, and to provide the secret knowledge necessary for one's return to the Pleroma. According to most Gnostics, Jesus entrusted the secrets of salvation, the saving gnosis, saving knowledge, to a favorite among his disciples and not to the rest of them. So he only imparted the secret knowledge to one disciple and he didn't tell the rest of them. All others were carnal or physical, and Jesus did not entrust his secret teachings to them. But the favored disciple, the truly spiritual one, received the liberating and secret gnosis. Most Christian Gnostic teachers claimed that their secret knowledge had somehow been bequeathed to them by that favorite, favorite disciple. This may be seen in the famous Gospel of Judas, whose recent publication made quite a splash in the press, although it actually says little that was not known before. There, Judas is the favorite disciple, 
the only one who really understands Jesus' message, that the soul is entrapped in the body and must freed for its ascent into the fullness, into the glyroma. This is the reason why Judas betrays Jesus. Although his action was not really a betrayal, but an act of obedience to the master who had, had to be freed from his physical body. So this whole thing leading up to Jesus' crucifixion is really just a charade between him and Judas, according to this particular form of Gnosticism. In this regard, Christian Gnostics presented a threat to Orthodox Christianity, not simply because they appropriated in the name of Jesus, but particularly because in doing so, they actually denied or limited the real humanity of the Savior. If the material world is evil, and Jesus is the alien messenger from a purely spiritual beyond, it stands to reason that he did not have a true physical body as humans do. He simply took on the appearance of a human body, thus to communicate his message to those souls which he came to free from bondage to material bodies. Or he took a special kind of body, not made of earthly matter, but of a special substance from the spiritual world. This notion that Jesus did not have a real human body is usually called docetism, from a Greek word that means to appear or to seem. Jesus seemed to be human with a physical human body, but this was a mere appearance. He did not eat, according to this form of Gnosticism. Or if he did, it was not because he needed sustenance, but rather to keep the fiction that he was truly human. Some docetists claimed that Jesus was not born, but simply appeared, so to speak, out of thin air. Marcion, whom I will discuss next time, and who was not actually a Gnostic, but held many points in common with the Gnosticism, affirmed that this happened during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That is, Jesus appeared just in time to begin his public ministry. So according to, to this teaching, Jesus wasn't born, he, he didn't even exist on earth until just before he began his public ministry, he just appeared. Gnostics also claim that Jesus had not really suffered and died on the cross. This sometimes led to wild imagination, as in the case of those who said that along the way to Calvary, when Simon of Cyrene was made to carry the cross, Jesus secretly exchanged places and bodies with him, so that the one who was actually crucified was Simon and not Jesus. And I think that's probably where Muhammad got the teachings that he gave to Islam about Jesus not really being crucified. He probably heard some of these Gnostic views along with many others on the, the caravan trade route before he started Islam. Another Docetist was a Gnostic teacher, Serinthus, who claimed that Jesus and Christ are not the same, but are actually two different realities. Christ is the messenger from beyond. Jesus is the phantasmagoric body that Christ took upon entering this evil world. Some interpreters believe that the following words in the first epistle of John are written to reject notions such as those Serenthus espoused, particularly his distinction between Jesus and Christ. Who is the liar? 
but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. So John may have been referring to this, this teaching that Jesus and Christ are two different things. And there is no doubt that the following words are addressing Docetism in general. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Christian Gnostics undermined the authority of the church at large to teach the gospel. If the true gospel was in fact a secret spiritual knowledge entrusted by Jesus to a favored disciple and then passed on to that disciple's followers, what all other Christians taught was at best the public teachings of Jesus, things he said that only the true secret disciple could understand, and that therefore the other disciples and then Christians in general understood in a carnal, unenlightened way. Christian Gnosticism generally rejected the ethical teachings of the church at large. If the body is by nature evil and has nothing to do with the soul, which is by nature good, two opposite and extreme consequences may follow. So if we, if we believe that, then there are two different routes that you might take. On the one hand, one may come to the conclusion that the task of the true believer is to mortify and punish this evil body, which holds the good soul prisoner. Thus, most Gnostics advocated an ethic of asceticism, extreme fasting, sleep deprivation, self-punishment, and absolute celibacy were among the many ascetic practices that some Gnostic proposed as ways to help the soul free itself from the body. But on the other hand, out of the same premise that the body is by nature evil and the soul is by nature good, the exact opposite conclusion can be drawn. If there is no way in which the evil body can do good and no way in which the good soul can be damaged by the actions of the body, it follows that the actions of the body are of no consequence. This seems to have been the position of some who are usually called Gnostic libertines. They are the Gnostics who believe that you can just do whatever you wanted, live however you wanted, because it didn't matter what the body did. Still on the question of ethics, no matter whether one was an ascetic or libertine Gnostic, all agreed that the body, being of little consequence, there was no need to be overly concerned for the suffering bodies of others. For this reason, Ignatius of Antioch, this was the, the first of the church fathers that I've covered, one of the most ancient Christian writers rejecting Gnostic teachings, reports that the Gnostics do not care for the widow or the orphan. He adds with a touch of irony that those who believe that Jesus is a mere appearance are themselves an appearance. They seem to be Christians, but only appear to be so, for they ignore those in need. So if, you, if we don't care about your own body, you think it's evil, then why, why would you care about the bodies of others? Christian Gnostics tended to withdraw from the worship of the church. This is, this is significant. 
This was partly because they believed that other worshipers, being unenlightened, were not true worshipers. But it was also because they objected to the Lord's Supper. How could the eating of bread and the drinking of wine have anything to do with purely spiritual truth? Are not bread and wine part of this material world? The result either of the malice or the ignorance of an aeon or some inferior being. So the Lord's Supper was not important to them because that was a physical material thing. For that matter, what about water in baptism? How can physical water, water like that which drops from the clouds and flows in the rivers, be connected with the true rebirth of the truly spiritual believer? Finally, bringing all these things together, one could say that Christian Gnosticism denied or subverted all of Orthodox Christian teaching. Indeed, some seem to have delighted in taking Christian scripture and turning it upside down. The Ophites, another branch of Gnosticism, from the Greek word Ophis or snake, declared that in the Genesis story, it was the servant who told the truth. The Cainites made Cain their hero. As, we'll, as we shall see next time, but Marcion too, although again, he was not a Gnostic, interpreted the Hebrew scriptures in exactly the opposite direction from Israel and the church. Gnosticism died out eventually, although it did not entirely disappear. Throughout the century, the church has, held, has had this struggle with a tendency to consider the physical world evil and understand salvation as being liberated from this evil body. It has also had to struggle with those who believe that salvation is attained by means of special knowledge, either secret knowledge or most commonly a particular detail of doctrine that is necessary for salvation. A pervasive Gnostic inclination may be seen in the commonly held notion that Christianity should be concerned only with the soul and not with the body. In the 19th century, partly through the influence of New England transcendentalism, the movement known as Christian science took on many Gnostic features. In more recent times, many people abandoned organized religion and seek truth and meaning in ancient esoteric teachings. Gnosticism has enjoyed a revival. Perhaps after all, it was the servant who spoke the truth. Perhaps the church has lied to us all these years. That such views are attractive to many is part of the reason why so many take the Da Vinci Code as fact rather than as a mere work of fiction. Perhaps were he to return today, Clement of Alexandria would still be amazed that it is so easy to mistake the tongue for the shoe. But even apart from such strange and wondrous doctrines, Gnosticism did have an impact on Christianity that is still felt throughout the church. For much of what we do today, bears the imprint of the early church's rejection of such doctrines. This is particularly true two features of church life resulting from the struggle against Gnosticism. The first of these is the concept of apostolic succession. Gnostic teachers claimed that they had received their secret doctrines from an equally secret tradition connecting them with Jesus. In response to such claims, Christian writers during the second and third centuries argued that if Jesus had secret teachings and secret teachings, which he did not, he would have entrusted them to those to whom he entrusted the church, namely the apostles. 
These in turn would have taught such secrets to those who would succeed them in leadership in the church. Therefore, if one really wishes to know what Jesus taught, one simply has to look at the leadership in those churches founded by the apostles. In Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Ephesus, Ephesus, and Rome, there were leaders who could trace their connection back to the apostles themselves. And they all agreed on the basic points of Christian doctrine, not like the Gnostics, each of whom had a different supposedly secret teaching. The other point at which we see the impact of the struggle against Gnosticism in the life of the church is the Apostles' Creed. And of course, the, the significance of, of the Apostles' Creed does not lie in endlessly repeating the creed by rote, anybody can do that, but the significance lies in sincerely subscribing to the ideas contained therein. This was originally formulated, the Apostles' Creed, in order to distinguish Orthodox Christian teaching from Gnosticism and from others who held similar views, such as Marcion. When we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we are rejecting the notion that the physical world is bad. We are claiming that our God made more than Tertullian's measly vegetable. When we say that Jesus Christ was born, we are saying that he did not just pop up out of nowhere. When we say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, we are declaring that he was not a phantasmagoric fleshless apparition. When we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body, or of the flesh, as the original form of the creed says, we are declaring that the body, part of God's good creation, is good, and that though much transformed, it too is destined for salvation. With Valentinus, facilities and the other Gnostic teachers. Be surprised to look to see that 19 centuries after their time, their memory still walks over the church, whose doctrines they rejected. With Clement of Alexandria, be surprised that the echoes of those fatuous shoeless tongues may still be heard. But Christians today throughout the world be surprised to learn how much they owe to these people who twisted the faith and who the church recruited and rejected. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great contrast that you have helped us to see between the truth proclaimed by the scriptures, proclaimed by the true church, and the false teaching of the heretics. We ask now that you would help us, help equip us to, to be ever vigilant for the heresies, the false teachings that threaten the church today. And we'd ask, we ask that you would help us to faithfully proclaim the truths that you have passed on from your scriptures to your church, to the world around us. And you would help us to be salt and light that you, you have called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.